trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You ready for some uh, industrial strength wrong think? Oh, I got a bunch of it lined up for you today. By the way, thank you so much for tuning in. I know there are so many voices out there you can you can choose and pick from and I, you know, I hope I'm contributing something of value to your day at least, you know, hopefully some thought-provoking content. Something to make you stop every so often and just say, "Huh. Uh, you know, I really hadn't thought of it that way. It's not that I have all the answers. I'm just a truth seeker out there like you trying to make my way in this uh, lone and dreary world and uh, trying to make sense of it all. So I want to start with something. I haven't talked much about this, uh, mainly because I have lacked, you know, full information. And I still don't think I have have all of the facts here. But uh, I get questions every so often. Someone will say, hey, how's Ammon Bundy doing? What, what do you hear from, from Ammon? And I do stay in touch with him, although he's he's been a little bit tougher to reach of late. Um, so the latest development in the uh, St. Luke's medical leviathan plus uh, corporate crony uh, <laughs> that's wedded to to some of the more corrupt state institutions here in, in Idaho, um, they've really gone after Ammon and his family. Um, sometime in the last few weeks, Ammon and his family packed up whatever they had and moved. I don't know where they've gone. They're not saying. The, the media is spinning it. He's in hiding as if he's done something terrible and shameful and now he's hiding. But the reality is um, a corporation with virtually unlimited financial supplies and apparently with, you know, some friends in high places, wink, wink, if you get my my drift, um, they have taken possession of Ammon's home and they've done it through legal trickery. I mean, look, if, if you wonder why, why would people be contemptuous of the law? Why would they have disrespect for the law? If you have followed what St. Luke's through their attorneys, uh, Holland and Hart um, have done and through a judiciary that appears to be absolutely in the pocket of, uh, of this uh, law firm and, and this, uh, this corporation, it's wicked. I mean, this, this is nothing more than wickedness writ large. It all goes back to Ammon standing up for a family whose infant son was wrongfully taken by St. Luke's. Of course, The Atlantic, uh, I guess, did an article, and, and it was released last week, so people are talking about it. The usual suspects are cheering, and, yeah, finally, they drove him out of Idaho. Our problems are solved. <laughs> like, wow. You uh, you guys remind me of, of the capos uh, that were in the concentration camps. Those were the Jewish prisoners who were used to inform on and to punish the other Jews in the concentration camps. Essentially, they basically gave their allegiance to the Nazis in belief that uh, this is going to buy me some leniency. Now, history tells a different story. They went into the crematories just the same as, uh, as their counterparts that they were informing on and otherwise controlling. Truly wicked people trying to buy a little extra time or a little advantage, who nonetheless found out to their chagrin that it doesn't matter when you're up against someone who is really bent on evil. And I'll admit, this is one of those instances where I, I, really, I have to practice being a good stoic and just admitting, you know what? In this world, disappointment is a reality. And sometimes the good guy 
doesn't win, in this case, the court battle. It's so funny to hear people say, well, Ammon's a coward. He ran away. And I have to, what the hell did you expect him to do? Stay there, shoot it out with police. Then what would you be saying? Oh, he was a maniac. He was shooting at the police. The guy did what uh, what was necessary to protect his family. I will tell you this. When, when I reached out to him, it was around Thanksgiving. Just asked, are you doing okay? And he, he had responded that uh, they're no longer in Idaho because he said it was too dangerous to stay in Idaho. I don't think that was hyperbole. I think that... Uh, They were, they, the powers that be, law enforcement, the judiciary, as well as as St. Luke's, were doing the best they could to concoct some kind of a situation where they could basically give him the Lavoie-Finicum treatment. Well, we had some kind of a confrontation for some reason with law enforcement, and, well, he made a furtive move, scratch his nose, and we, we didn't know. We thought he was reaching for a weapon. We had to kill him. By the way, do you know that at the time Lavoie Finicum was pulled over, and then ambushed in a dead man's uh, ambush or dead man's roadblock, um, there was no arrest warrant at that time. So people said, well, he was running, you know, from law enforcement. They had a legitimate reason. They did not have a legitimate reason to stop him. They just did it and then came up with an arrest warrant later for, for those who'd survived. By the way, you know they were all acquitted, right? The ones who were in the car? Yeah. Wonder what the jury heard that, that changed their minds that, uh, well, these weren't the criminals that they were told, you know, that they were dealing with. So here's what I'm asking. I know it's disappointing. It's enraging, actually, you know, to, to see this kind of injustice and to see, the, you know, the apparent uh, victory laps being taken by St. Luke's and, and uh, the absolutely horrific excuse of human beings that, that populate their, their law firm. It's awful stuff. And the rumors that are circulating in the press and the, the, the short-minded people, the, the people of tiny souls who just rejoice in somebody else's suffering and misfortune. It is disappointing. But there is an ultimate justice that will prevail. And that's hard, right? I mean, justice delayed is justice denied. Nope, there's a universal justice. All of us are going to experience it at some point. And I would urge... Put your faith where it belongs. Put your faith in the God of the universe, who is the ultimate judge, and who will ultimately deal out whatever justice needs to be dealt. But remember, you and I are subject to that same justice. So let's not make ourselves, you know, something that's worthy of condemnation or someone who's worthy of condemnation. Short gains by people in evil positions. And I think about the people who are cheering, yeah, finally, you know, The right has won, you know. They're the same people who would have been cheering as they watched their neighbors loaded onto cattle cars. They're the same people who would cheer, you know, at the elimination of the intellectuals under Pol Pot or the Kulaks under Stalin. They would have cheered, you know, the fact that Mao was able to to, uh, reshape their society with that great cultural revolution and those millions of people who died, well, they deserve to. They don't realize this is this is where their allegiance is going, but it's the same kind of thing. Might makes right. Therefore, if might wins, well, then it must be right. And what's really sad is they're going to believe it right until the day that they are marched up against the wall by the very powers that they are supporting and executed. They're going to be prayed, but I was on your side. Doesn't matter. Idiot, your usefulness has been expended. I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm a little bit bitter 
I'll tell you, it's, I, I go back and forth sometimes between a sense of sorrow and rage at the injustice that's being done. But then again, I, I have an advantage that I guess some don't have, and that is I can go to the source if I want to form my own opinion. In fact, uh, uh, Ammon's wife, Lisa, posted this, uh, this was uh, last night. She posted a little thing on, on Facebook, and it was just a, just a little, uh, little meme. It says, rumors can make you dislike innocent people. Don't judge people off of what others are saying about them. Be wise, get to know them for yourself, then form your opinion. The one talking to you may be the one you need to stay away from. So if, you, if you're one of those people on the fence, and chances are, if you're, tu- if you're tuned into this show, you probably at least have some degree of sympathy for, for Ammon and for his family. I will tell you this. What he did was an act of public virtue. And I know people will say, but Brian, he, he made people mad and they were blocking the emergency entrance. They were not trying to prevent anybody. The protesters who showed up when baby Cyrus was kidnapped, medically kidnapped at the behest of doctors, the police and and, uh, you know, the Department of Health and Welfare. The protesters were not there to shut down the hospital or storm it, but you hear it portrayed in those terms in, in a very sympathetic press. That's hyperbole. OK, it's lies. But doesn't it strike you as odd that within a week that baby was back in his parents' arms, that no charges were filed against his parents? The only people that were gone after were the baby's grandfather and Ammon Bundy. Why? Because they blew the whistle and shone the light and brought the pressure on St. Luke's to where they couldn't stand the heat. And nothing they did was untruthful. So, yep, injustice for the moment seems to be holding sway. It's not always going to be this way. And I don't want to sound hysterical, but I'm going to tell you there's going to come a day, and it may be somewhere far off in the halls of eternity, where the people who have been working so hard or rejoicing so much to see Ammon Bundy and his family being crushed beneath the weight of Leviathan, these folks are going to hang their heads in shame when they realize what they were supporting and what they were doing in terms of uh, of persecuting someone who was trying to correct a wrong. And that's one thing I got to give Ammon credit for. Every day he sat in jail, every time he stood in a courtroom, it's never been for something that was self-serving. He was always, in every instance, standing up for somebody else. Make of that what you will. But when in doubt, go to the source, if possible, to get your opinions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, I got it off my chest. I feel a little bit better, but... uh Man, I, I'm telling you, there's there's a lot of work ahead of us for those who uh, who wish to uphold what is good and what is right and what is decent. Not because we're trying to go around and force it on everybody. We're just trying to keep those principles alive in our lives. And it sure, it sure feels like there are people trying to take it from us at every turn. By the way, I found a very interesting uh, article. This one actually showed up in my inbox yesterday. Paul Rosenberg. And I know that, uh, well, first of all, let me start by saying this. I talk to people from time to time who have been very adamant about I was not going to be forced 
to take the jab. If you remember what it was like two years ago, the pressure that was being brought. This is when uh, Joe Biden was talking about our patience is wearing thin. I hope you're ready for your winter of death and sickness and so forth. Basically, the unvaxxed were being cast out from righteous society and and told that uh, they could not participate. And it turns out that the people who were doing that and some of the people who were most enthusiastic about it were dead wrong. And then there were also people who, under duress, chose to take the jab. And and it's easy to dismiss them as, well, they were just a bunch of scared sheep and they don't even think for themselves. But look, I've been guilty of wanting to make that assumption too. Paul Rosenberg, I think, makes a very strong case about there there was a degree of calculus that had to go into making that decision. And I like his explanation here. I want to share this with you. He says, it's now been two years since the height of the COVID compulsions. And even though some people are clinging to their rhetoric, he says, almost nobody is lining up for that new injection. Have you noticed that? After all, everyone got the disease regardless. The COVID vaccine, remember, you won't get or spread COVID was in modern parlance an epic fail. So he says, I'd like to examine what happened to us and then find a way back to living with each other in decency and in peace. I think that's a worthwhile goal. He says, let's start by recognizing that our world has always been awash in emotional pressures. After all, scaring people into doing things is a lot easier than convincing them. The COVID pressures, however, were taken to a new level. And here's how he describes it. He says, first of all, the entire institutional hierarchy of the West coalesced into a single regime with singular and pointed demands. More than that, these were enforced demands in one way or another. More than 2 million people lost their jobs because of them. Now, it's also important to notice that the institutional combine blasted their message to people who were planted in front of televisions and plugged into social media an unnatural number of hours per day. In those positions, they were not only deluged with the aforesaid single message, but they also witnessed the repeated savaging of anyone who said otherwise. So bear in mind, please, that the real issue here isn't the rightness or wrongness of those viewpoints. And he's right. It's the fact that there was a single enforced orthodoxy imposing its will on nearly the entire world. That was a very bad thing. And he says a very, very dangerous thing. But even as unprecedented levels of psychological pressures were inflicted on them, and with compliance being the only way of escape, people still involved reason in their choices. And this is, the, this is basically the calculus that they had to do. The, the process went something like this. Number one, if I get their shot, I can live like a person. And if I do what everybody else is doing, they can't criticize me because they will have done the same thing. Number two, if I don't, I may lose my job. Every person in my family will degrade me. People won't let their kids play with mine. It will make my entire family outcasts. Number three, losing my job would be an instant disaster. We wouldn't be able to pay our credit cards and maybe not our mortgage. We'd be ruined and it would be my fault. Number four, so what's the risk of taking the shot? It's probably true that some people have been sickened by it, but it's probably no more than 1%. Number five, okay, I'll take the shot. He says the calculus here, the trade-off was between a 1% chance of personal disaster and broad guaranteed suffering. So most people crossed their fingers and they went with that 1% risk. Does that make sense? 
to me, that's that sounds like a logical way that many people would have approached this. Now, Paul says there's a lot more to be said about the dark passage we've come through, but this point needs to be clarified first. He says, I think it's a prerequisite for our return to a humane society. I know personally a good number of people who took the jab. And for some of them, it was because of advanced age or health issues or compromised immunity. And there were others who were simply up against the wall. Well, I'm going to lose my job if I don't do this. You got to admit, that's pretty powerful incentive. Considering that the economy was already, you know, on life support, (laughs) advanced life support at that. So... I guess we need to be able to cut slack. I'll tell you personally, the people that I have the hardest time in in wanting to make nice with, um, it's the people who are the most vehement. The ones who would who would come up to people who are unmasked in the grocery stores or the shopping centers and, and start calling you out and making a scene and threatening. I know they were operating under fear. And they were probably just doing what they felt was was best at the time. But at the same time, there was a there was some kind of a mind bug unleashed in people with totalitarian tendencies that made them feel safe in acting on those tendencies. And I think we all probably learned that there were more than a few people in our lives who would gladly sell us out for the sake of wanting to please master or whatever the you know the orthodoxy was that was enforcing that one single viewpoint. Now, most of those people weren't in power. The ones that were in power, okay, I'll admit, until they, you know, give a mea culpa, until they actually step down or resign from power or do something to try to make right what they did, I'm going to be very leery of them and probably withholding my complete forgiveness or at least my trust in them until I see some kind of indication that they know they were wrong. Most of them have doubled down. We never forced you. We never, we never said you had to do that. That was, that was all your choice. But I do see a lot of people who were part of the masses, part of the public, who bought into the fear and now in retrospect are realizing, okay, I got the jab, I got the boosters, I still got sick, I'm still getting sick. And they realized they were duped. What an awful place to find yourself. And and it doesn't help the situation if that's the person we pile on and start rubbing their nose in it like some naughty dog that piddled on the carpet. We need to be magnanimous in terms of, look, you made a mistake. And if they're doing the best they can to come back from it, if if they've actually changed their point of view, they've changed their approach, let them come forth as a new person or as a different person than they were under the, the pall of that fear, that fear rather, you know, a couple of years ago. You would want people to cut you slack if you made a grievous error like that. I think we owe them the same. This is just the golden rule being applied. Now, I am applying a different standard to the people in power, at least those who are unrepentant. I still think they need to be separated from power permanently. And frankly, my sense of justice says they need to be sitting in a courtroom answering as in a criminal trial for what they were promoting, what they were supporting, what they were trying to impose on other people. And it may sound extreme when you start saying words like, we need a Nuremberg-style tribunal to deal with these people. After affording them due process, if it's found that they committed crimes against humanity, well, 
I think Nuremberg provided some uh, some pretty good uh, examples of what justice might look like. But the truth needs to come out. I don't have a whole lot of trust in the justice system right now, but I would still be willing to afford them their day in court to try to make the case of why did you do this? Was it reasonable? What would a jury say? And I think I would respect the jury on this one. So, this is, this is my struggle. Yep, I'm willing to forgive those who are willing to say I was wrong. Having a little tougher time with the unrepented ones who want to double down and tell me, no, 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 you imagined all of it. Gaslighting me is not uh, a good way to appeal to mercy. <laughs> I assume I'm not the only one who feels that way. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I want to delve into a little bit different topic here. Eric Peters and I talk a lot about EVs every time we have him on the show. He'll be on tomorrow, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this, but more and more news stories are beginning to surface with um, auto uh, retailers, automobile dealers, reaching out to the government saying, hey, 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 could you slow down the roll on this push for EVs and trying to push EVs? Well, we need this many cars, you know, on the road to be uh, clean energy. They have thousands upon thousands of cars sitting there on their lots, unpurchased, in part because people can't afford them, but also because people just flat out don't want them. Look, what people really want, they will find a way to afford. You know that as well as I do. Got a great article here from Kenneth W. Costello. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Let the market, not government, decide the fate of EVs. Kenneth Costello says, Advocates of various energy technologies have long argued that major barriers, either government or market-derived, stifle the development of their favored technology. They then infer that the current level of their preferred technology is suboptimal, necessitating some form of governmental intervention. You see where this is going? Uh, in this case, Kenneth says that seems to hold true for New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, who wants to, who wants state tax credits and mandates on the purchases of electric vehicles, or EVs. On November 16th, the governor's appointed Environmental Improvement Board adopted a stringent clean car rule that requires 82% of all new vehicles delivered to the state to be zero emission by 2032. Now, the governor's agenda is a double whammy for gasoline, diesel-powered vehicles. It makes uh, make EVs more economically attractive with taxpayer-funded subs- subsidies and restrict the number of gas or diesel-powered vehicles that New Mexicans can buy. Again, that's government making that decision, not the consumers, not the market. But perhaps the strangest part of her agenda is that she hopes to trim the number of gasoline or diesel-powered vehicles in the state without knowing whether that is what the citizens of New Mexico want. Car owners are, are, after all, wary of EVs for various reasons, including high upfront costs, limited range, and people's inherent skepticism of new technologies. So here Governor Grisham is telling New Mexicans that she knows better what types of vehicles they should purchase than they do, ignoring the wishes of her constituents in the process. Today, only about 1% of of vehicles in New Mexico are EVs. We're talking less than 10 years 
to have 83% of them EVs. In other words, the government, the governor is looking to fundamentally reshape the car industry via regulations, mandates, and subsidies, and added to the insult is her requirement that the taxpayers pay for her all-electric scheme when the when utmost of them don't even stand to benefit. So far, purchasers of EVs are mostly in the high-income category. That will likely hold for the foreseeable future. What that means is that tax credits and other subsidies will benefit the well-to-do and will be paid for by people who are financially less well-off. One study noted that the U.S. academic literature indicates that up to 90% of EV purchase incentives adopted by the federal government have flowed to the richest one-fifth of households. Now, this also suggests that many of the purchasers would have bought an EV in the absence of government incentives. This behavior means that the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions attributable to incentives is overstated, and the incentive is essentially a windfall gain to higher-income households paid for by the less well-off. That almost sounds like a form of plunder, doesn't it? A mandate to require that a certain percentage of vehicles or EVs represents a policy with intrinsic distortions. It's a blunt instrument, draconian, and expensive relative to other ways of mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, which, by the way, that's the stated rationale for the governor's all-electric mandate. Banning or artificially restricting goods or services dictates consumers find a substitute that they think is inferior to the product being banned, or else such action would not be necessary. A ban forces consumers to do something that they would not otherwise do. So by reducing options for vehicle owners, driving will become more expensive in New Mexico. Government controls over greenhouse gas emissions directly affect goods and services, such as electricity and transportation, whose costs will likely escalate. If controls include banning or severely restricting fossil fuels like gasoline, those costs could be substantial. We have an abundance of fossil fuels at affordable prices, which explains why over 80% of the world's energy still comes from fossil fuels. This raises the question of whether we want to or even can wean ourselves from fossil fuels over the next two or three decades without suffering severe economic consequences. Now, he says the governor's actions presume that EVs are a winning technology, but this is presumptuous, as there's much uncertainty over the future of EVs. Mandates carry risks. Mandates require policymakers to pick winners and losers, an almost impossible task. It often results in failure given the limited knowledge of policymakers and their propensity to serve special interests. The problem is particularly acute for new technologies with a high level of uncertainty over cost and performance. A better way to make EVs more attractive to consumers is to have them compete against gasoline or diesel-powered vehicles. When regulating or legislating away their main competition, it becomes more likely that EVs will continue to be inferior to gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles. Now, what's particularly perplexing is the rationale behind the governor's intent to accelerate the purchase of EVs by New Mexicans through tax credits and mandates. She argues that the tax credits will make EVs more affordable to middle- and low-income households. But one cannot ignore the evidence showing that the subsidies will disproportionately benefit the wealthy at the expense of the less well-off. So far, 90% of EVs in the U.S. have been purchased as a second or third car by high-income households. I mean, that kind of sounds like a novelty, doesn't it? It's not even clear that replacing gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles with EVs will have a positive environmental effect.
Similar to many other batteries, the lithium-ion cells that power most electric vehicles rely on raw materials like cobalt, lithium, and rare earth elements that have triggered grave environmental and human rights concerns. Cobalt has been especially problematic. The environmental effect, of course, depends on what energy sources are used to produce electricity. Currently, much of the electricity generated at night when charging occurs for most EVs comes from fossil fuels. Whoops. So even if EVs lower greenhouse gas emissions, studies have shown that they are still inefficient in terms of the cost per unit of avoided emissions. Other alternatives, such as nuclear power and natural gas, are more cost-effective. One study found that EVs are among the most expensive tools government can use to lower greenhouse gas emissions, as measured by dollars spent to achieve a given amount of greenhouse gas emission reduction. So a better policy would be to impose an efficient tax on greenhouse gases and tailpipe emissions. In fact, Kenneth says, indeed, most climate activists view fossil fuels as a barrier to achieving deep decarbonization targets deemed essential to protect against alleged catastrophic climate change. They consider the electrification of buildings and transportation with clean energy sources as part of a policy portfolio to achieve these targets. What they don't say is that their proposals for government intervention will have benefits less than costs and is in fact a subsidy for the rich. Kenneth Costello says, look, EVs are a remarkable technology that I hope will succeed without government assistance, both for equity and economic efficiency. Government inducements, whether to hasten the number of EVs or charging stations, are a bad idea. Governments can spend, can better spend taxpayers' monies. He says, EVs have a promising future. Technological advancements in batteries, other aspects of production and charging stations will determine the fate of the product. Their success is more likely if government steps out of the way and allows EV providers to address market demands to lure consumers with price reductions and better vehicle performance, not with subsidies and mandates. I mean, you don't have to be an economist to understand. People choose what is best for them, and and we're not one size fits all. So an EV might be the best choice for some people. And for others, it might be a really bad choice. But the problem for all of us is when government steps in and says, you know what, I know the answer. I'm going to, you know, force this to happen by making this unavailable artificially. So we create artificial scarcity. What happens to the price of, you know, gas and diesel used cars? That's right. When there's less supply and demand is high, price is going to go through the roof. Meanwhile, the promise of clean energy. I mean, isn't it just interesting that, you know, when do most people charge their EVs? Well, I charge it at night while I'm sleeping. Yeah, and where's that energy coming from? It's coming through the power lines. Is it coming from coal, natural gas? Can we change the subject? I'm getting a little bit uncomfortable with this line of questioning. I can imagine why. Oh, look, there goes another train load of uh, clean fuel for your EV. Straight from the coal mine to the power plant. Look, if you want an EV, I say go for it. But like Kenneth Costello, I'd like to see them succeed because that's what the market wants and not because some bureaucrat is putting words on paper to force us to take them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. It's our final segment of today's show. By the way, anybody else kind of marveling that, uh, okay, December's here. I hope 2024 goes as quickly as this year went. Just because I have this sense that uh, 2024 is going to be a little bit bumpier ride than 2023. I hope I'm wrong, but, uh, but I'm not convinced that that's the case just yet. Three articles I would like to direct your attention to in this final segment. Article of the day. I'm not going to go into this one for, for, well, for the reason that there's a lot of bad language in this article. So be warned if you go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and you click on the article of the day, you will get to check out uh, Thomas Luongo's take on uh, Elon Musk's three-word response to Disney and the other companies threatening to pull their advertising from Twitter over its uh, lack of censorship. It was harsh, but I think a lot of people, <laughs> myself included, were, were actually very relieved to hear Musk tell, uh, I think it was Bob, his message to Bob Iger from Disney, well, you know, Disney's threatening to pull its ads. What would you say to, you know, these companies that say that uh, you're, your, your platform, Twitter, or X, is, is now a hotbed of anti-Semitism. And Musk's response was, you're threatening to blackmail me with, with advertising money? He said, go blank yourself. Clearly, go blank yourself. And I know a lot of people <laughs> kind of pulled back like, whoa! And then at the same time, we're like, yes! It's about time somebody said that uh, or drew that firm, you know, rhetorical line in the sand, you know, for the people who just keep trying to push, push, push and twist our arms. You will submit. You will submit. I think he actually gave them the best answer that they could have. Thomas Luongo says Musk wins the battle of words. It was a harsh but appropriate response. I would highly recommend his article. Tom Luongo has a very solid take on a whole lot of stuff. I think you'll appreciate his take. Do be warned. There's some pretty bad language. All right, here's another one. A war of words being waged all around us. It's very disorienting for those of us on the receiving end of weaponized language. How to achieve tyranny with mush words. This is an article by Steve Rose. Pick this one up off AmericanThinker.com. He says, if you want to become a tyrant and transform your fellow citizens into slaves... All you need are a few good mush words. Now, mush words are words with vague definitions. In other words, they're slippery, hard to pin down, elusive, ultimately unknowable, and for budding tyrants, they're extremely useful. So, the word racist, for instance, instance, it's a it's a superb mush word. Sexist is outstanding as well as is whatever a phobe. Better yet, accuse someone of being full of hate. But how do they work? Why are mush words powerful enough to achieve tyranny? Well, he says, first, you don't need to understand why they work. You only need to understand that they do work. It takes no talent or intelligence to just sling these words around and reap the rewards without understanding the dynamics involved. That said, for those who want to dig deeper, here's a brief summary. The two keys to good mush words are, number one, unknowability, and number two, accusation. Now, unknowability is the magic ingredient that gives mush words their mushiness. The essential element is slipperiness. A mush word is like a verbal greased pig, or Proteus, the uh, shape-shifting Greek god who could change forms at will. Vagueness is critical. Clarity is the enemy. 
It's interesting to notice that hardly anyone accuses anyone else of having six fingers or being nine feet tall. Why is that? It's because those things can be easily verified. They're clear, objective, and open to the public. There's no uncertainty, no controversy, a complete lack of drama. For budding tyrants, they're useless. Good mush words, on the other hand, point to things that are impossible to quantify, measure, see, hear, know objectively, or disprove. While nearly everyone can easily verify whether you have six fingers or are actually nine feet tall, no one can conclusively see that you're racist or that you harbor hate in your heart. I've talked a lot about the bogus or the unspecified predicate over the years. That's what he's talking about here. Now, these can be argued about, of course, but arguing requires effort, which creates opportunity. As Bertrand Russell said, the most savage controversies are those matters to which there is no good evidence either way. And since there's no objective public scientific way to verify mushword accusations one way or the other, these stages or these areas rather are beyond the reach of fair-minded, reasonable people. It sets the stage for a confidence game which allows anyone to bluff their way in. Whoever can pretend to have certainty on the matter wins. If you can pretend to be certain of something ultimately unknowable, chances are the other per- person won't be certain precisely because it is unknowable. It isn't hard. Just pretend to be psychic and act confident about it. If the other person even seems less confident, well, the battle is essentially won. The trick is to weaponize uncertainty. If it's done properly, it creates a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose, house-always-wins scenario. If anyone gets close to clarifying things, the mushword changes definitions, escapes into vagueness, and the game can continue. So the best mushwords are so slippery they could be applied to practically anything. Math, for example, could be described as racist or pancake syrup. Coffee, golf, sleep, grades, assault weapons, or wanting honest elections. It's the mark of a great mushword. Anything and anyone can become wrong. Now, to some, this might make the word meaningless, but with proper salesmanship and coercion, it becomes all-powerful. But that requires the second ingredient, accusation. That's number two. That's what makes mushwords truly lethal. Publicly blaming someone for doing something wrong is powerful because we all want to be right. Even the rebellious and humble, both of whom describe themselves as wrong, do that because they think it's right in a bigger sense. The ethical framework involved might be real or imaginary. It doesn't matter so long as the target believes it. So use a mushword to accuse anyone of doing something wrong and they'll panic and scramble around like terrified children, trying desperately to prove that they aren't whatever you accuse them of being. They'll fail, of course, which means they've fallen right into your trap. Take, for example, accusing someone of being racist or whatever a phobic, hateful, etc. They'll likely and desperately start naming dear friends and family members of different races. Whatever they do, you can laugh at them and mention how ridiculous and racist they look even in their attempts to deny it. The more they try to escape your spell, the more often they'll find themselves enmeshed. Informally, they're guilty until proven innocent until they can definitively clear their name which is usually difficult, if not impossible, because the burden of proof is on them. See how that works? It's all-powerfully effective and often hilarious to watch. But is that person actually racist? See, that brings us right back to the slippery definitions. What is a racist? More importantly, it's irrelevant. The aim isn't to discern truth, but to eliminate political enemies, create an outlet for real hatred, or cow people into submission. Once a person has been accused and is squirming, offer a way out. 
people will often do anything to prove that they aren't whatever you accuse them of being. So you can point them in any direction, such as telling them, well, donate money to your pet organization or make public declarations, join a cause, etc. To the degree that your ploy has been effective, you own them and can point them wherever you want. Why does this work? It's because deep down many of us carry around a secret sense of guilt or shame as if we'd done something wrong in the past, even if we aren't quite clear what that was exactly. That guilt can come to the surface and get activated quite easily. Tyrants exploit this. Those who constantly accuse others of racism have essentially rediscovered sin, something Judeo-Christianity and other religions described thousands of years ago, now dressed up to look secular and therefore socially acceptable. Here's how this con game hijacks human nature. We often don't know ourselves. Human motives can run deep and are often mysterious. So when someone loudly accuses us of having a specific motive, especially if they seem confident or have a clever argument to back it up, many of us will collapse into gullible puddles of goo. That person accused me of being, insert mush word. Maybe it's true. Maybe I should do some introspecting and try to better myself so I don't get accused of being, insert mush word here again. See how it works? The Salem witch trials demonstrated this well. The formula was simple. Accuse someone of being a witch. What's a witch exactly? Well, nobody knew. They pretended to know, but their answers were absurdly tragicomic. Ultimately, witch was simply a mush word. Today's witch trials work much the same. The process is like casting a magic spell. A dark sorcerer chooses a mush word, picks a target, accuses them of being guilty in some mushy way, and then watches them squirm and scramble. Unless they can break the spell, they're yours. So what breaks the spell? Well, the game collapses when someone assertively stands up against mush words. If people insist on being judged by clear, objective, publicly available measures, or if they simply know themselves well, then they see through it all. Or worse, they might go on offense and accuse the accuser of slander. When that happens, the gig is up. The spell will be broken, it's time to find a new mush word, an easier target, and to start over. Now, luckily, few do this. Laws, cultures, even entire societies are built around mush words. People imprisoned, impoverished, executed, based on mush words. The fact that it's based on a kind of verbal sorcery made up of senseless, hysterical, impossible to verify accusations, that's beside the point. For most humans, mush words rule. That's why they're so easy to enslave. That's a pretty powerful essay. This is The Brian Hyde Show.